Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Leon Bridges. Open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This is the last in the message series entitled Lost in the Music. We've been talking about pop music, uh, trying to listen to uh, the musicians, the artists, the cultural philosophers of our day so that we can understand better the world in which we live, the world we're called to share the gospel. Leon Bridges can help us a lot. So can uh, Psalm 32. Long before Leon Bridges was writing songs, David wrote this one, Psalm 32. Uh, Let's read this and then we'll talk. Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in floodwaters of judgment, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. So Leon Bridges, let's talk about that. Um, That song is called River. Leon Bridges is a 33-year-old. His name is Todd Michael Bridges, Leon Bridges. Uh, is his name. He was uh, born in Atlanta, Georgia, raised in Fort Worth, raised in church. Uh, Leon Bridges is a believer, uh, a a vocal Christian, uh, which is somewhat amazing and interesting. I've already told you that when it comes to pop music in the United States, most of our artists uh, are from the church for the simple reason that church is one of the few places in our culture where people sing. And where people will learn to sing. So Justin Timberlake, uh, Christina Aguilera, all of them come out of the church, strangely. But most of them leave their faith somewhere far in their past. Most of them do not continue to live and practice their faith. Leon Bridges is different. Leon Bridges uh, is a devout Christian. And he sings about it. And his music is rooted in it. Uh, It's amazing. His fame came very, very quickly and, and very recently. He was literally a dishwasher in a restaurant in Fort Worth when he, you know, his first album uh, just caught fire, and it literally did. It's called Coming Home. It is great. Uh, I've been doing this for four weeks, you all, and, and I haven't really loved every all the music I've shared with you. Lizzo, I like Lizzo. I'll dance to Lizzo. Uh, I'm not a, Chase Rice, I'm not a country music guy. I was faking that whole week, y'all. Um, no, I, I know that song, but I don't know a lot of country music, so I, I can't really say that I, I, I listen to that all the time. In Canto, I'm a 57-year-old man. I'm not really watching and listening to a lot of Disney, although I try to keep up for the sake of the kids in the church. But now, Leon Bridges, I listen to this. 
I like Leon Bridges a lot, and, and, and this is my jam, I guess we'd say. Um, his first album, Coming Home, is just amazing. It's just amazing. Um, and especially to listen to it as a believer because he's just, he's singing my song. He's speaking my language, you know. He's got a song on Coming Home that is literally the story of how his mother came to know Christ. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. He's something else as a songwriter. Um, but here's the thing. As is most common and, and tragically common, whenever a Christian uh, finds fame in the secular market, like in the secular world, instantly they step into a really difficult kind of place, a place of tension, because for the most part, as a church, as the church, we expect that Christian now to step out there and, and in Leon Bridges' case, and all of his church friends, they expected him to just go out there and only sing songs about Jesus, like only sing Jesus songs. And that's not exactly what the secular market wants, and Leon Bridges is broadly talented, can write all kinds of music. And so you find yourself in that, in that situation where you're, you become too worldly for the church, but then if you're not careful, you're too preachy for the world, you know? And so it's why it's very, very difficult for a, a man or woman of faith like Leon Bridges actually to find a place in the secular music world, which Leon Bridges clearly has. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, in my lifetime, I have now lived long enough to have witnessed a kind of shift in our culture, though, and, and that's part of what makes Leon Bridges fascinating to me. Um, when I was a kid, it was very r routine. You could hear people uh, talk about, uh, I don't know, a biblical language. You'd hear people talk about, let's say, the Good Samaritan or uh, you know, the, the lost sheep, you know, th that sort of thing. You'd, you'd hear them just mention things that we might say in church. The prodigal son, for example. You could say the prodigal son in any English class in any university, and everybody would know you're making reference to a Bible story. Because you know? it wasn't that long ago when people in our culture didn't live so far from the influence of the church. And so they knew a lot of our stories, they knew a lot of our language, they knew a lot of our traditions and symbols, but that's no longer true. That's no longer true. The world in which we now live, people who are not in church, they are far, far, far away from the church's influence. They no longer know the Bible at all. They don't know its illusions or its stories or any of its language. It's, it's foreign to them now. This doesn't speak well for our success as evangelists and as a church you know, sent to reach the world, but it is a world in which we live. They are further and further from us than, than ever before. And for that reason... A guy like Leon Bridges can sing songs that have blatant, blatant scripture. The, the song River that you just saw part of. In that song he says, you know, but there's blood on my hands and my lips are unclean. Now when he sings that, I know that that's straight out of the book of Isaiah. That's a biblical quote. And I know that and I'm excited, you know, that he's sort of speaking my language. But you have to understand that in the world today, they don't know what he's talking about. River is a prayer. That song is a clear, blatant prayer. And it's also a song about forgiveness. It's a song about baptism of all things. And he speaks in, in biblical language. He uses our symbols. He uses so much of everything we, that we know about. But now in the world, they don't know what he's singing about, but they like him and they're drawn to him. Leon Bridges is a very popular artist. So what's been interesting to me, again, if you understand how music is consumed these days, a lot of 
Like I've watched Leon Bridges videos on YouTube and then under, you know, YouTube, any page, there's always the chat, you know, the comments. And there's always lots of comments under Leon Bridges' songs, Leon Bridges' videos, which is amazing. People love him. Uh, under the song River, though, just to give you a little taste of it, I just want you to see what people say. Now, this, these aren't the church people. These are just the people people, okay? One woman writes, this is such a painful song. This song is all of us. Thank you, Leon. It's interesting. That's not a Christian, but that's a woman who says, I mean, that, that, that song is all of us. Another one says, gives me chills every time I hear this song. Gives me chills. I'm not a religious person, but he makes me want to be. That's interesting. Another, I've never been a religious person, but this song is so beautiful, I almost get emotional when I hear it. Almost. Um, when he says, trust in the good Lord and he will wipe your slate clean, it sends chills throughout my body like the Spirit is here with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is not a church person, you all. One woman writes, this song, this soul, it's what I imagine love sounds like. What is going on? You know, they don't know what he's, they, they don't know that song is a prayer. They don't know it's about baptism. They don't understand it, but there's something about this song that vibes with them. What's going on? One more. I don't exactly know what it is that this dude has, but he has it. Okay. I think you know what this dude has. I think you know what Leon Bridges has. And, and, and I wish that one of you would go tell them what it is that Leon Bridges has. Leon Bridges knows Jesus. So I wish that we could somehow get to them and tell them you know, what it is that Leon Bridges has. And, 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 and you all know that. And I think that somehow you know what it is about this man's music that vibes with the, the heart of every lost person. I mean, lost people hear his music and something in them vibes with it, you know? What is that? What is it in a lost person's heart that makes them respond to this music? Um, several years ago, uh, I was driving into Bowling Green and I saw one of our senior ladies' car on the side of the road. And that's the thing about a small church, I, I know everybody's car, so you, you you can't misbehave in town because I, I know your car. So I, I recognized her car, and it was on the side of the road at Lost River. Um, and all four of her doors were open on the side of the road. And, and then I saw her. She, she crawled out of the back seat, and she ran around to the front, and she crawled in the front and was looking through her car for something. And so I pulled off to help her. I just pulled in behind her, and at first she didn't see me. Because she was so frantically looking, just looking. She'd run around the car. She would crawl in the front seat. She'd look under the seat. She would reach. She would come around, get in the back seat. She would go back to the front. She would open the glove compartment. She'd open that glove box over and over, looking and looking. And finally, I, I didn't want to startle her, but I just, I called her by name. I said, sister, you know, what's going on? Can, can I help you? And she looked at me for a minute. Her face was confused, and, and she was afraid. She was afraid. But she didn't talk to me. She just 
turned back around and started searching through her car, just rifling through everything. She'd open her purse. She'd open the glove compartment over and over. She'd look under the seat. She'd run around and start all over. And I said, sister, what are you looking for? She looked back at me, and I, I said, tell me what you're looking for, and I can help you. And then she just looked at me, and again, her face was so confused. It was so afraid, and she just said, I was driving to town. When I was driving, I realized I didn't have it. And, and so I, I decided to stop the car and look for it, and now I'm looking for it, but I can't find it. I, I said, what? What are you looking for? And she said, this is terrible. I don't know. I don't know. But I can't stop looking. And so she just turned and started going through the car again. And she couldn't stop. I called her son. Um, he came, got her. They took her keys away. Um, that was the beginning of her long slide into dementia. You know, at the end of her life, she didn't even know any of us. But I want you to think about that, that state of mind that she was in, that state of mind where she didn't know what she was looking for anymore, but she couldn't stop looking. Can you imagine that? Can you think about that? She didn't know what she was looking for, but she could not stop looking. But back in my day, and some of you are from my day, uh, 1987, U2 came out with a song called I, I, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Anybody remember that song, Old People in the House? Yeah, there you go, Mike. His, Mike raised his hand, his denture slipped when he, when he uh, raised his hand. Uh, I still haven't found what, <laughs> Chip Jenkins laughing over here like, yeah, there you go. Um, Still haven't found what I'm looking for. It was a lost person song, if you remember this song. Uh, and it's a song about looking and looking and looking and never, ever actually finding what you're looking for. Because ultimately, as you know, they don't know what they're looking for. Um, it's, it's the song of every lost person. It is the truth of every lost person. Now, here's the real truth. And you understand this. We all need Jesus. But until you find Jesus, you don't necessarily know it's Jesus you're looking for. I just want you to understand that. In the world, we know that everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Uh, it, it is not that there are multiple ways to find the salvation that Jesus offers. No, it's not that there are multiple ways to peace. No, no, no. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven given by which you know, we can be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus alone offers salvation. Everybody needs Jesus but they don't necessarily know that it's Jesus that they need. And so that's why in the world people are just searching, and they're searching in confusion. They're searching in fear sometimes, but they're searching, and they cannot stop searching, and they won't stop searching, but until they find Jesus, they will never find what they're looking for. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand? You see this. Everybody you know who is outside of Jesus, this is their life. It's Jesus that they need. 
Now, they may turn to alcohol or drugs, and if you've ever seen a person who gets addicted to alcohol, it, it, it is so sad to watch them literally drink their life away, but they continue to drink, and they will continue to drink because they keep thinking that somehow, some way, what they're actually looking for, that rest, that peace... You know, for the drug addict, it's that, it's that high, that they, they want to capture that high, and they just keep thinking, if, 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 I can take, if I can take one more hit, one more pill, if I can just do one more deal, you know, then, then I'm going to find that high, and they never find it because it's not there. It's never there. That's the tragedy of, of addiction, but it's not just addiction, you all. There are people who do relationships the same way. Some of you have friends, man. She's in bed with one guy and then out of it and in bed with another guy. You know, you got friends, man. He'd been married five times. He just goes from one wife to another wife. I mean, some people in this house, you'd say, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is about me. I, I keep trying to find a good guy. I keep finding the same old kind of guy. I keep marrying the same man, even though it's a different man. I never can find anybody that treats me the way I want to be treated. I mean, you, know, you just, you can't make people understand that it's Jesus you know, the love you're looking for is not in the arms of any man or any lover. It's Jesus. Only Jesus will satisfy your heart. I mean, it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. But they don't know. They literally don't know. They don't know what they're looking for, but they can't stop looking. And until uh, Jesus finds them, I'm telling you, they will never, ever, ever find that satisfaction. It, it, it's heartbreaking. Back in the 17th century, there was a, a, a thinker by the name of Blaise Pascal. It was Blaise Pascal who first said what he said. And what he said is that there is in the heart of each person an infinite abyss. Okay, that's awesome. That sounds like something they'd say in the 17th century. Uh, an infinite abyss. What is an abyss? Let, let's, let's start there. An infinite abyss. What's an abyss? Yeah, it's a bottomless hole. That's amazing. That's a great answer. It's just emptiness. It's a bottomless hole. So Blaise Pascal in the 17th century said that every person alive has this bottomless hole, this infinite abyss. But he goes on. He says it's an infinite abyss that can be filled only by an infinite immutable object. That is to say God himself. Blaise Pascal, 17th century. We have this infinite abyss that only God himself can fill. Now, others have paraphrased that, and you, you may have heard somebody say, you may have heard people say that we have a God-shaped hole. You ever heard that? That people have a God-shaped hole. They're saying what Blaise Pascal said first, that there is this bottomless hole, this, this God-shaped hole. And the fact that it's God-shaped means what? Only God can fill it. Only God. No matter what else you try, no matter where else you look, no matter what else it is that you try to cram into your life to, to, to fill that place, it will never be filled. Your heart will never be at rest, always restless, until you find your rest in him. I mean, that, that's just the truth. So in our day, in our age, man, people try all kinds of things. They cannot stop looking. They cannot stop. Most people that you know, it's, it's got more to do with, like, distraction. They're probably not out there, you know, drunkards or, or, or strung out on drugs, but probably it's just more to do with, with entertainment, you know, always wanting to be entertained, you know, seeking pleasure after pleasure. You've got a TV now in your house that is bigger than the house my grandparents lived in, and you have 900 channels and Netflix that is a bottomless hole of TV shows, and you still sit there and can't find anything to watch. 
I mean, what does that say about you? What does it say about us that we are so bored with all of these shiny things around us and and an amazing world that we live in, but somehow we look at all of it and we somehow know it's not there. What I need, what I'm looking for, it satisfies me for half a minute, but then it's not enough. I always want more. It's that infinite abyss, you understand? It's that God-shaped hole. One lady writing about the song River underneath Leon Bridges' YouTube channel, she writes, I wish I could find somebody who could make me feel the way this song makes me feel. Now, remember how I've been saying for four weeks now that if you listen to this music, if you listen closely, if you listen in the Holy Spirit, you, you, may, you may recognize an open door for the gospel. So when somebody writes, this dude's got something, I don't know what it is, but he's got it, okay, that is an opportunity for you. I think you know what he has. And when somebody writes, I wish I could find somebody who could make me feel, I I think you know who that somebody is. It's, It's an open door for the gospel, and that's what brings us to Psalm 32. As I said, before Leon Bridges ever wrote anything, David was writing psalms like this, and Psalm 32 is amazing. It's a psalm of joy for the one who finds forgiveness, and it's beautiful. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Oh, what joy for those whose sin is put out of sight. I love that. I mean, I love that. But now, there are some things that I have learned to understand which helps me love that. Like you, I understand that that sin is the problem. Like, I know that. And I think most of you know that sin is the problem. Not just my problem, not just your problem. Sin is everybody's problem. This is the gospel. This is how it begins. Sin is the problem. Every single person is a sinner. We don't all experience lostness in the same way, and we can't always even name what it is that is missing or that is wrong with us. But deep down, we all know, and and you and I have a word for it. It comes from the Bible. It's called sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is what brings the separation from you and the God who made you. It is sin which keeps a person in lostness until they finally, finally find the forgiveness that Christ brings. It's sin. It's always, always sin. And so David just calls it out. What joy for those whose sin is put out of sight. So David knows it. I know that sin is a problem. David, by the time he writes Psalm 32, he knows that sin is the problem. But I'm reminding you, most of the world, they do not know that sin is the problem. Some of them don't even know that they have a problem. But everybody does. We all do. It's sin. It's sin. So before you can call it sin, before you know that the problem is sin, how do you experience it? If you don't have words for it, what what words would you go for? This is why I like Psalm 32, because I really like verse 3. It's when David thinks back to the moment before he receives forgiveness, that moment before he finally turns to the Lord. He, He just sort of reminds you, he tries to describe what that was like. I don't, I don't know how some of you I know have, have been believers for a long, long time. You may not even remember or, or, or you haven't thought about in a long time what it feels like to be lost. Like what that feels like. 
And, and if you can remember that, can you remember what it feels like when you first start turning toward the Lord? Because before it feels good, it feels worse. Can I just say that? Before it feels good, it, it, it feels worse. Once the Holy Spirit really begins to stir in your heart, he starts bringing up things that you haven't wanted to think about. I mean, some of you remember that. Do you remember being so uncomfortable in your own skin that, that when you go to bed at night, you have to play the television or something because you can't deal with quiet? You ever know anybody like that? Or have you ever been like that? It, you know, when things get quiet, all of a sudden... You have to listen to your own thoughts. You have to think and you have to hear the voice in your head. And that is the voice that you simply cannot bear to listen to. So you want to keep noise going. You understand? I'm just saying that when the Holy Spirit starts bringing stuff up, it's not comfortable. At first, when you have to really begin to recognize that, that you have blown your own life, that sin is real, and that God is calling you, that is hard. The old folks used to use the word conviction. They would say, that person's under conviction. And if you've ever, y'all ever heard that word, conviction? Yeah, when you see a person under conviction, y'all, I mean, it's misery. It's misery. Until you finally surrender, it is a terrible feeling. Y'all remember that? I'm telling you, as a pastor, I've known people under conviction. People under conviction can be really mean. I mean, they can be mean, like you'll bring your lost friend to church and, and they, they're not comfortable up in here because of that conviction, because I'm telling you, before it's a good feeling, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. You come into the presence of God and instantly you begin to become aware of the sin in you and you don't want to see that. And you don't have words to explain it. Now we're looking back, and we got Psalm 32 in the whole Bible. We have a vocabulary for trying to explain what that is, but I'm telling you, people don't know. And so sometimes they even take steps toward the Lord, but they begin to feel, begin to feel the way their sin pushes them away, continues to you know, open up that separation. I'm telling you, it's, it's not a good feeling. So David is trying to talk about before that forgiveness is received, while he's still sort of, you know, not turning toward the Lord. And he says, when I refuse, verse 3, when I refuse to confess my sin, New Living Translation, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. That's a pretty good, remember Dave, David didn't speak English, David spoke Hebrew, he wrote in Hebrew, and so Verse 3 is in Hebrew, it's not in English. And what he literally says there is so interesting to me. He says, you know, before I, before I, was, before I received forgiveness, um, my body wasted away. Um, the words he used there are, are, are something like, um, there was a howling in my bones. Howling. Uh, New Living Translation catches that word groaning, but it's that idea that it was deep in me. There was something deep in me. And, and there aren't real words for it, but have you ever experienced it? Do you remember what it is to not know the Lord, to not be at peace with him? David just says, um, I, I felt it in my body. My, there was a howling in my, in my bones. We're trying to capture what lostness is like, you know, what, what that sin feels like when sin's all you know and sin's all you got. This is just howling in me. Later down in, in, in verse 4, my strength evaporated. The Hebrew word there is sap 
like the, like the invisible juice in a tree, the fluid that runs from the roots to the leaves, and, and it represents the life of the tree. And David just says, man, this, this, this sap in my soul was just dry. And he's trying to explain that, that, that thirst in his soul. I'm telling you, there aren't actual words for any of this. And, and so that's why when you deal with lost people, they experience this, this howling in the bones, this, this, this bottomless hole, this th- thirst, this dryness. And they don't have words and they don't know, they don't understand. But if you've been there and you all have, then you know that. That, that, that misery, that, that just ache in the bones. You know, I mean, David just says, my, my bones groaned. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. My, my, my bones groaned. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And verse 5 is the turning point. Finally, I confess my sins to you. Stop trying to hide my guilt. Finally, I confess my, my sins to you. It's, it, it's amazing. That's the turning point. I confessed. Confess is a churchy word, but it, it just means, take the two parts. Confess means to say with. To say with. In, in other words, it's like saying to agree. Like, finally, I just agreed. I just agreed with that voice, the Holy Spirit in me that was telling me that, that there was something wrong in me, that there was this bottomless hole in me. Finally, I stopped trying to act like that wasn't true. I stopped trying to act like I had it all together. I stopped running, and, and then finally, I just, I just agreed with the Lord, and, and I said, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. Verse 5, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. This is what makes this just the most amazing song, the, the most beautiful song. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. What joy for those whose sin is put out of sight. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. What joy for those whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And I know I'm in a church full of people who are believers. I, I recognize that. But do you know? Do you know what he's talking about here? Have you experienced that? What joy for those who, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Do you even know what that is? Because it, it kind of gets back to what it is to be a sinner. When you have sin, you have to keep secrets. It, it's the nature of sin. It's the power of sin, to be honest. That secrecy. But, but in your sin, you recognize that, that you have to keep a lot of secrets. You have to tell a lot of lies. I, I don't mean you're actually always telling lies, but in many ways you have to live a lot of lies. Because you have to be one way, you know, when you're home with your parents, and then another way when you're with your friends at school, and then another way with your friends at church. And you have to, like, learn how to be a different person depending on who you're with. And that's what I mean. That, that's living a lie. In your sin and your secrets, I mean, some of you guys know that, like, right now, like, you have to guard your phone because you know if your wife ever picked it up and if she ever really knew what you look at on the Internet, you know she'd leave you. 
Like, you can't let her just get the laptop after you because you know you have to, like, erase all of your history because if your wife knew what you look at online, y'all know what I'm talking about? It's just that, it's, it's that secrecy just always having to just hope that nobody ever finds out. I mean, some of you sit right here and, and you just think if people in this church knew what I'm like, if they know where I was two nights ago, if anybody knew, they would not want me. And this is why David says, what joy for those whose lives can be lived in complete honesty. Like you don't have anything to hide anymore. You just get to live, and you get to live in, in that joy, and it's the joy that comes with forgiveness. It is the joy that comes from forgiveness, and you forgave me, he says in verse 5, all my guilt is gone. All my guilt is gone. Again, I know I'm talking to believers, but have you experienced this? Do you know about this? Because some of you, I'm looking you in the face, you don't know that joy of having all your guilt being gone because you still feel so guilty for everything. You have so many regrets. It's one of the reasons why you don't like to be quiet because all of those voices come back telling you what you should have done and what you shouldn't have done. You still carry guilt from your first marriage. You still carry guilt for the way you feel like you failed your children. You still carry guilt for all kinds of things. So much regret. Always wishing that you could have done it differently or you wish you should have never said that. I mean, and on and on and on it goes. Do you understand that this is exactly what God wants to set you free from? The psalmist says, all my guilt is gone. All of that is gone. There is no voice of condemnation anymore. Nobody that can tell me I'm not worthy. All my guilt is gone. All my guilt is gone. It's, it's, it's the amazing thing. It's also the difficult thing because for the sinner, and again, you just got to remember where you were when Christ found you. Once you begin to understand that, that your sin, all of your sin is actually an offense to God, like all of your sin, like you may have hurt a lot of people in your life, but you recognize that only God can judge you and, and he can judge you. Once you recognize that he has the complete record of all of your sins, You've never fooled him. You've never kept anything secret from him. Once you know that all of your sin flies straight up his nose, and, and, then, and then the message is, this is the God you're going to turn to and trust. I think that's hard for people. I think that's sometimes hard for me. How are you going to trust the God who knows exactly who you are? How will you trust the God who is in the position to condemn you, not just in this life, he can condemn you for eternity and he can do so with justice. How are you going to trust the God who ultimately is the God whose anger your sin has aroused? How will you trust him? How can you know that he will be trusted? It's the beautiful thing. It's the beautiful thing. It's the forgiveness part. The God who forgives is the God you can trust. It's because I know that he forgives me. Because he clears my record of all of my sin. Because he never brings up my sin again. Because my sin will never be brought up again with him. Do you understand? This forgiveness, this amazing, this amazing forgiveness is what lets me know that I can trust him. Now, you have to understand, this forgiveness is, is unique in all the world. You know, the people are saying to Pastor Tim, I think you just don't understand that all the world religions basically teach the same thing. 
You know, when you say that to me, the main thing that tells me is you don't know anything about world religions. They do not teach the same thing. Not even close. I mean, Buddhism, understand, is an atheistic religion. Buddhism doesn't even have a God. So you can't say that, you know, we're a little bit like, no, we're not like Buddhism at all. Buddhists are atheists. They don't have a God. And this forgiveness that, 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 that the God that is revealed to us in Jesus offers, there's nothing like this in, in any other world religion. What are you talking about? To take Hinduism, for example, it's a world of people who follow Hinduism. There's no forgiveness in Hinduism. That's the whole point. That's the point that in this, in this life I will sin and then I will die and even death does not separate me from my sin. I will be born again into another life and my sin will follow me. I will pay for my sins in a future life and your sin just continues to mount. There's no end to the cycle and there's no relief. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. You just continue to live out the cycle of guilt and punishment. There's nothing like this grace, nothing like the gospel anywhere else in all of the earth. I'm telling you, this God who forgives you is a God you can trust. Once you understand that he's not keeping your sins against you, once you understand that he wipes your record clean, once you understand that he loves you like that, then all of a sudden you will recognize that when the waters rise, he will not let you drown. You can trust him because he forgives your sin. If he forgives me, he's never going to turn away from me. The fear is that you know, somehow he'll remember my sin and rise up in anger and come down and put me in my sinful place. And that's what we fear, that he'll turn and judge and, and want to put us in our sinful place. But that's not, that's not how he is because he forgives me. I can trust him when he comes. He's not coming to put me in my place. He comes to be my hiding place. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The God who forgives is the God that you can trust. You can trust him, trust him. So how do we persuade lost people to trust him? This message is such good news. Don't you know that it's good news? Haven't you experienced what the psalmist talks about? How can you not want other people to experience that? It is what every lost soul aches for. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what the problem is, but they can't stop searching. When are you going to start telling them about Jesus? How can we persuade them? I know four sermons into an evangelism series, you think I should have told you by now. Um, let me just tell you what I think. Um, I know some of you will question me on this. You may not agree, and, and we can disagree on this. Let's just keep all telling people about Jesus. But, but let me say this. I think it's probably a waste of time to keep telling them they have a problem they don't know they have. I know. I know. They're not going to get saved until they know that they're lost. I know. I know. I, I know. Um, 
I just think that you and I often, we sort of go out in evangelism like there are two steps. And, and the first step would be to get them to agree with how terrible their life is. You know, and then swoop in with Jesus as he answered to it all. But I'm telling you, if, if this is your step one, they're not going to listen by the time you get to step two. And Jesus is the good news. Jesus is what they need to hear. You say, well, Tim, you know, somebody, some, they have to see their sin. Yeah, they do have to see their sin. But Jesus says in the Gospel of John that it's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's function to convict people of sin. Let the Holy Spirit do it. When you do it, it just sounds judgy. It just sounds like judgment. Let the Holy Spirit do that. Yes, you know that sin is their problem. I know sin. You and I both know about sin. But, but I'm telling you, if you think the step one is to just go out and tell them how terrible they are and then try to get them to agree with how terrible they are, I mean, as I say, they don't necessarily all know that they have a problem. They, they can't connect those dots. And I don't know how much you can do to help them. If you think that's your goal. I mean, we're trying to convince them that they're miserable because they don't have Jesus, but a lot of them aren't. They don't think they're miserable. They're having fun, y'all. Sin is fun. I mean, don't look at me like that. Sin is fun. If, 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 if sin's not fun for you, you're doing it wrong. I mean, sin is fun. And so the world is, is in their sin, and, and there is that season in which they haven't yet really discovered that what they're looking for isn't there. They're still searching. I, I'm just telling you, if you go out there trying to convince them that they're terrible and that their life is terrible, if you think that's step one, you'll never get to step two, which is, you know, tell them about Jesus. I, I just think that maybe, maybe evangelism is actually more of a one-step thing where we just tell them about Jesus. It just... Just go straight to the Jesus part. I mean, if you want to spend time, you know, trying to tell them that they're miserable, and like I said, I don't think they'll be listening when you get to Jesus, so just start with Jesus. Just go to Jesus. The early disciples said, we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard, and they're talking about Jesus there. They're talking about Jesus. Paul says all kinds of people out there preaching all kinds of things, but as long as they're preaching Jesus, you, you know, it's Jesus, the gospel is Jesus. So in your effort to give them everything else you think you know, why don't you just, you know, cut right to Jesus because I'm telling you, Jesus is what they need. Jesus is what they need and Jesus is truly what they're searching for. Jesus says, you know, if, if, if I be lifted up, I will draw people to myself. You just lift up Jesus. Draw them to Jesus by just pointing them to Jesus. Lift them up. Show them Jesus. I mean, surely you know Jesus. Surely you've discovered what, what Jesus can do. And if you've experienced that, if you know the joy that the psalmist talks about, then I don't understand how you cannot want everybody else to experience that. The answer is Jesus. Point them to Jesus. So one more time, let me remind you. I think evangelism is intensely, and this is a strong word, and it's an important word. I don't think you're going to do a lot of evangelism by accident. I, I really think that you're going to have to be very intentional about your life. You have to realize that this is our church's purpose, to, to share the gospel with lost people, and the whole world is lost if they don't know Jesus. We've got a lot of work to do. This is our only purpose. We're not primarily a group that gathers for singing or primarily a group that keeps up a building and mows the yard. We are a, a, a missional body. It's the only reason we're here. When our mission is complete, Jesus will call us home. In the meantime, let's just stay with the work. And that's not just our church. This is you as a believer. This is your purpose. What do you think your purpose was? To just earn another dollar and sock it away for retirement? How empty is that? You have a purpose, and it's a gospel purpose. 
So evangelism is intentionally joining people on their spiritual journey. I'm telling you, everybody's on a spiritual journey. Pastor Tim, you have not met my neighbor. He is not on a spiritual journey. I promise you he is. I promise you he is. The Holy Spirit knows that man's name. Jesus died for that man. I'm telling you, Jesus stands at the door of that man's heart and knocks. You have no idea how the Spirit is at work in that man. So just understand, he is on a spiritual journey, and he's got to find Jesus just like everybody else. And maybe he really needs your witness. So you're going to join people on their spiritual journey and help them take one step closer, one step closer in relationship to Jesus. Now, some people are already so close to being there that you're going to share Christ and they're going to step right into the kingdom. And that is wonderful. It is a blessing to walk right into the kingdom with a a new believer. That is amazing. And that is an opportunity that I trust you'll all have at some point. But, But most of the time, evangelism is just this. It's just planting seeds. It's watering seeds. It's just continuing to nurture what the Spirit is doing. I'm telling you, salvation is, is Jesus' work. It's his work. But we get to be a part of it. So we just come alongside people and, and in your conversation, in, in, in the way you love them, and in, in your example, and the way you share, the way you give an answer when they ask a good question. Understand, you just want to help them take one step closer. Just one step closer, because I'm telling you, they keep taking those steps. Before long, they're going to step right into his arms. He is everything they've always been looking for. They just may not know that right now. But I think you know that. Don't you know that? When, When the guy writes about Leon Bridges, I don't know what this guy has, but he has it. Like, you know what he has don't you know what he has? And don't you think you could tell somebody what it is that gives you this hope and this peace and this purpose for your life? I mean, if you know Jesus, if you know the joy of having all of your sins forgiven, then I don't know what would have to be dead in your heart for you not to want to tell somebody else who you know needs him. Come alongside people, help them take one more step, one more step toward Jesus, because honestly, you know, everybody needs Jesus. They don't all know that it's Jesus they're looking for, but it is a terrible way to live. Always looking, searching, not even knowing what you're looking for. Help them know Jesus. Tell them. It's Jesus. Pray with me.